Good morning, everyone. Real privilege to be able to be with you again. If you don't know me, my name's Phil Oster, and I am a member here at City Reach. And uh, it's a privilege to be opening God's Word as we delve into our new series about the life and the events of Simon Peter and our endeavours to see Christ in and through those times. So let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we, uh, as we will soon see, Father, we are completely dependent on your work today in our lives to open our ears and to hear your word and have your spirit apply it to our hearts. So Father, would you come today in majesty, come today in grace, come today in power and make a change in our lives. Lift up our eyes to see Christ today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage for today, which um, Lockie read most beautifully this morning, uh, comes from Matthew 16 and from verse 13. So if you've got your Bibles there, uh, notice we don't have the little uh, Bible racks anymore to stick your Bible, but I guess if you've got your phone, you've probably got a pocket. But anyway, grab your Bibles out, turn to Matthew 16 while I ramble on with my preamble. Um, Biblical scholars note that this moment in Matthew is, is a significant turning point. It's a, it's a pivotal moment. Um, Jesus has spent much of his time in the gospel. Uh, well, he started off as a baby, of course, uh, then grew up. And there was a public ministry where he was uh, reaching out to the masses. He was preaching. He was telling God's truth through parables. He was healing the broken He was showing um, spectacular signs as to who he was through miracles. Um, He was speaking to the corruption and the wickedness of the spiritual leadership of the Pharisees and Sadducees at the time. But Jesus is now withdrawing from the limelight, so to speak, and he's withdrawing, um, intentionally directing his energies and efforts to this group of people that are closest to him, this group of disciples, He knows that the cross is looming on the horizon. It's it's drawing closer, and he wants to spend significant time with this bunch of people who are going to be the leaders of his church when he ascends in glory to the Father, not too far away. And Jesus takes them to a town called Caesarea Philippi. So we've got a map of Caesarea Philippi. uh, And so there it is. It's in the north uh, there, and the far left up there, right up the top in that red box is Caesarea Philippi. So it's about 25 miles to the north of Sea of Galilee. It's on the southwestern slopes of Mount Hermon. Um, and it um, was in the sort of the headwaters of the Jordan River, kind of like halfway between Birdwood and Mount Torrens, headwaters of the mighty Torrens. That's the sort of place where it was. And um, Caesarea Philippi um, was originally, that area was known as a place of uh, Baal worship by the Canaanites who used to live there from um, a long time past. And then when the Greeks were winning later on, they turned it into a shrine for their um, goat man fertility god, so-called, called Pan. And they changed the name of the town to Paneus. And you can see some ruins of it there on your right. Um, But in our day... Uh, by the time our story's come along, this town has been rebuilt by Philip the Tetrarch. Now, Philip the Tetrarch uh, was the son of 
King Herod who had rebuilt the temple, the great temple in Jerusalem. Um, so he was one of kind of like the royal family of the local region. Um, of course, it was his wife that um, the other Herod uh, had gotten involved with, uh, much to uh, the annoyance uh, and preaching of John the Baptist that eventually cost his head. Anyway, um, Philip the Tetra. Uh, Philip uh, rebuilt the town, called the town Caesarea in honour of Caesar Augustus or possibly Tiberius Caesar, depending on which uh, historian you like to listen to because there's a bit of conjecture out there. But in order to distinguish it from that other town, Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, this town became known and presumably loved as Caesarea Philippi. It's kind of like what we have here in South Australia. We've got two country towns known by the same name. That, what's the name of that town? Kingston. Kingston. And uh, so we have um, two towns called Kingston, one of which is named after Charles Kingston, who was Premier of our great state in the very late 1800s, directly before Federation. And we have another which is named after Sir George Strickland Kingston, a South Australian politician, surveyor and architect. And so to distinguish between the two Kingstons, we call the first one Kingston on Murray and the second one Kingston South East. I don't know why they just couldn't call one Kingston and the other one Queenston. It'd be a whole lot easier, but they decided on this. And just out of interest, who hails from Kingston on Murray? Any Kingston on Murray people out there? Absolutely no one. Kingston Southeast? No, absolutely no one. Well, there you go. Um, but just in case um, you didn't know, um, that's the similarity between the Caesareas in ancient Israel and the Kingstons here today, except, of course, um, that tragically there was no big lobster at either of the Caesareas. <laughs> Now, all that is to say that Jesus and his disciples were just outside the boundaries of Galilee. So they'd moved away from the limelight, from the masses, and they were in Gentile territory. So they'd found a quiet place in which Jesus could shift from giving sermon to the crowd to having more intimate dialogue with his most trusted disciples. Well, there ends my preamble. So hopefully you've got your Bibles there now, and we are ready to jump into verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, it's easy for us to just gloss over that, uh, but Jesus has referred to himself in the third person. Now, if you or I were there, we, we probably would have asked the disciples, who do people reckon I am? But he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He refers to himself in the third person, and he uses this term, the Son of Man. So what does that even mean? Why does he do that? Well, the term the Son of Man is actually found throughout the Old Testament. And particularly, it has its roots in Daniel chapter 7. And the book of Daniel, besides the, the great children's Bible stories at the start, is filled with some spectacular imagery, which we should all digest on a regular basis because it shows us something of the sovereign glory of our great God. So, the book of Daniel. Daniel writes this, uh, which coincidentally uh, is put up on the screen today by another young fellow called Daniel up in the tech box there. And Daniel says this, 
He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So this, as we now know, is none other than Jesus appearing before God the Father in the heavenly throne room of God. And to him, that is Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How awesome is our God? Christianity is just not some sidelined religion, one of many things we might choose to provide interest to our life. This is the story of history. And God is on the throne. And principally in this place, Jesus has been handed the kingdom. Awesome stuff. This is our saviour king. Often when we, we think of Jesus, we think of little Jesus in the manger or the little boy growing up or, or the man walking on the, the, the shores of Galilee with his disciples. And, and we think principally of a man. But the Bible has got some spectacular images of Jesus as the glorious, omnipotent Son of God. This is the incredible moment where God peels back the veil just for a moment to reveal the unspeakable glory, power, and dominion of the second person of the Trinity, the Christ, the Son of God. And this is the God that we worship and adore. This is the God that we will worship for all of eternity. He is the omnipotent, sovereign God. And so the Son of Man is a totally appropriate phrase for Jesus to apply to himself. His disciples hadn't quite made the connection yet, but they will, and soon. So back to our text, we've got more to see. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus was asking them, what, what was the word on the street? What's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? Who, who do, what's, what's happening in conversations between your friends, your family? Um, what was public opinion suggesting about his identity? There was no social media back in those days, no internet, no printed media, just word on the street. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, if I was to ask you, for example, who do people say that Anthony Albanese is? I'm sure you could give me a variety of answers. Some say he's the battler who rose to the top, the Prime Minister of Australia, the chosen one, <laughs> the one who will save Australia, or maybe the puppet behind a greater conspiracy, a deceiver intent on destruction, or even the Antichrist himself. And all of that will help me gain a picture as to where public opinion is at concerning who Anthony Albanese really is. But what it doesn't tell me is what you personally believe 
about who he is. Well, the disciples answered Jesus' question like this. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And that's a really interesting menagerie of candidates for the identity of Jesus. John the Baptist was, in fact, dead by this time. Perhaps some hadn't heard the news yet. News would take a lot longer to travel back in those days. Indeed, there were quite a number of people, including Herod himself, who um, thought that Jesus could well have been John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others wondered if he was Elijah. The last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, had given a prophecy uh, right in the final verses of the Old Testament that seems to have foretold the return of Elijah when he wrote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So there was all this going on that gave people good reason perhaps to believe or to think that Jesus might be Elijah returned from the dead. Still other people wondered if he was Jeremiah. There's nothing in the Bible about this, but there was Jewish tradition that suggested that when Messiah came, Jeremiah would reappear. He was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And so there's, I guess, a degree of plausibility that it could well have been Jeremiah that had appeared. And still others were wondering if Jesus might be one of the other prophets. Well, what about today? Who do people say that Jesus is? Now, when I was a kid, which wasn't all that long ago, when I was a kid, I can clearly remember being in grade four, so I was about eight years old, and I remember talking with my peers, kids in my class, and you know, we all knew that you know, so-and-so was a Baptist, someone else was a Lutheran, someone else went to the Uniting Church up the road, someone, well, they were a Christadelphian, someone was a Jehovah's Witness, a couple of them were Catholics, and, but that person, she doesn't go to church. And it was like scandal. Like, to my little eight-year-old uh, worldview at the time, it was scandal. Someone doesn't go to church. Someone doesn't know about Jesus. And I was shocked as an eight-year-old. You know, um, most people had some sort of a, a connection with church. That they might not have gone to church, but they probably sent their kids along to Sunday school, and they would have professed that, oh, I'm an Anglican. Um, even if they didn't have a saving faith, there was a great understanding about who Jesus was. But I think those times have drastically changed. I think we would be stunned if we knew the number of people in Australia today who actually have no idea who Jesus is, especially amongst the younger generation. They've got no idea who Jesus is. They've heard him used as a swear word in movies, and they use it themselves. But in terms of whether he was a good man, or a prophet, or a great teacher, or whether he even existed, a lot of people have got no idea. You can see the church today has got a lot of work to do to re-proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to a new generation. I'm reminded of a famous excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, 
where he talks about people's ideas of who Jesus is. It's a little long, but it's, it's worth exploring. So he writes this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. You've got to love British humour. <laughs> or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. By this time in his life, C.S. Lewis had become a Christian. And he goes on to say this. He says, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis had come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, C.S. Lewis is dead and gone. He died on 22nd of November, 1963, less than an hour before John F. Kennedy was assassinated. All right? You can store that bit of information away for your next trivia night. You're going to need it one day. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis is not with us anymore. But you're here. And every one of us, you and me, needs to also reach a conclusion about who Jesus is. In fact, that's where Jesus takes us right now. Verse 15. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus gets intensely personal because ultimately, ultimately it doesn't matter at all as far as you're concerned what the world says about who Jesus is. It doesn't matter what Wikipedia says or what you can find out about him in the library. It doesn't matter what your parents say about who Jesus is or your friends, your family. It doesn't even matter what Pastor Graham says about who Jesus is. What matters for you is who you say Jesus is. Jesus looks you in the eye and says simply, who do you say that I am? And it reminds me of Jesus talking to Martha near the grave of her recently deceased but soon to be resurrected brother Lazarus. And she was grieving at the graveside and Jesus had come. And 
Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He's just stated a universe-shattering truth. He's the resurrection and the life. But then he immediately takes it a step further and he says to Martha, do you believe this? The truths and the promises and the reality of Jesus are infinitely profound, but they are absolutely useless to you and to me unless we embrace them as our highest treasure and cling to them more than life itself. Do you believe this? Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, enter our homeboy, Simon Peter, for his first appearance in our text. Verse 16. Listen to his answer. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this is Peter. This is the guy who puts his foot in his mouth. He stumbles over his words. He's impulsive. He's uneducated. He's, he's a fisherman. He stinks. And he always blunders. Has he blundered again? Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You can almost feel Jesus' genuine excitement and joy. It's like a, a teacher or a parent when they see their student or child suddenly grasp something that's key, a key truth that would become a life-changing moment for them. And for Peter, this was a life-changing moment. And Jesus is just excited. He's excited and you can feel it flowing out. But before Peter has the chance to feel smug for being the first one in the room to come up with the correct answer, Jesus stresses that flesh and blood has not revealed this truth to Peter. It's not his hard work or his cleverness or his goodness or his super spirituality or anything of his own doing by which he has understood this truth. Instead, it was a gift from God the Father. And this, friends, is the gospel of grace. This is why the gospel leaves us humbly on our faces in absolute adoration and worship of our God and Saviour. Because it wasn't our effort to reach out to God which saved us. Rather, it was God who took the initiative to come to us. He breathed life into us. We were as dead as Lazarus in the grave, sealed with a stone. We were rotting and stinking with no hope and no future. But God came. God came and breathed his life into us. God unblocked our ears, gave us ears to hear so that we could hear the call of God, come forth. And what else could we do but come forth 
in obedience and gladness. He removed our blindness and he gave us eyes to see Christ as absolutely beautiful, the God worthy of our adoration. He shattered our heart of stone, our cold, dark, hard, lifeless heart, and he gave us a new heart filled with affections and joy in the beauty of our Saviour and Redeemer. He made us born again by the sovereign work of his Spirit, and we are left with absolutely nothing of which to boast except in the cross of Christ by which he has reconciled us to God. God the Father created the plan. God the Son outworked the plan. And God the Spirit sovereignly applied the plan to our hearts in real time. In John 6, Jesus has much to say about this. John 6 is one of those passages of Scripture that you just can't help but worship. Everything Jesus says, it just lifts you to worship. Here are some highlights. It's an absolute symphony. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. A little further on, Jesus says this. He says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So he told Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this truth to you, but it was my father in heaven. And he's saying the same thing here. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So salvation is completely a work of God's grace and God's initiative. Hence, all the glory belongs to God. All the glory belongs to God. And as people redeemed, as people saved, as people translated out of darkness into light, we rejoice in this God of grace such a great salvation that he has wrought for us. He hasn't just done so much and the rest is up to us. He's done it all to bring us to God. And guess, oh, not, no, not yet. I find it, it's one of the most poignant moments in all of scripture that um, we've got, um, just have a listen to this. This is, this is, that at the end of John chapter 6, we find some disciples starting to wander away. The teaching's too hard for them. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says this. He says this to the 12. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you 
are the Holy One of God. It's a poignant moment. This, this is a magnificent moment in Scripture where we see a raw faith which God has given to Peter. It's a raw faith that enables us to wrestle with our doubts and to have the propensity to cling. Charles Spurgeon talked about that concept, that God gives us the propensity to cling when we have nothing else, when we're on the precipice, when we're at the end of ourselves, God gives his people the propensity to cling, the tenacity, so that we are not lost, but we stay connected to Christ. There is no one else who has the words of eternal life. There's no other saviour. Jesus is quite simply the only Christ. He's the only Messiah, the only way to God. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, as the hymn writer wrote. And it was Simon Peter who made that pronouncement. Simon Peter made that pronouncement. But what he professes is not something of his own imaginings, but something which God has gifted him, something which now resonates in his heart as being absolutely true, absolutely beautiful, and absolutely compelling. Can we say that about our faith, about our love for Christ? Have we come to know Christ as the truth, the absolute truth? Have we come to see Christ as absolutely beautiful, and is absolutely compelling. Back to Matthew 16 and verse 18. So Peter's just declared, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's declared that. And Jesus has delighted in this and stressed that God the Father has brought this to bear in Peter's heart. And now Jesus goes on, And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus calls Simon Peter, uh, which comes from Petros in the Greek, which means rock. So some of you who loved Christian music back in the 80s and 90s would be very familiar with that great band called Petra. Any Petra fans out there? Sensational. What a great band Petra was. I miss Petra. Anyway, they were rocking for the rock back in the day. Um, So he calls Peter, he calls Simon, Peter, rock. And R.C. Sproul writes that there are probably few verses in all of the New Testament more controversial than this one. Most notably, the Roman Catholic Church has picked up on this verse and has used it to argue that the church is built upon the Apostle Peter and his successors, namely the popes of Rome. Protestants, however, of which we are a part, believe that this rock upon which Jesus will build his church is not the person of Peter, but in fact the profound declaration of Peter that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, and it's upon that declaration that Jesus will build his church. This truth, then, is a declaration of absolute 
sovereign triumph and victory in the plans and purposes of God. Where Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the Greek word uh, translated here as hell is actually Hades, which refers to the realm of the dead. So effectively, Jesus is saying that not even death, the last enemy, will be able to prevail against his church. Nothing, no enemy of God will be able to prevail against Christ and his church. His victory is absolutely secured. It doesn't matter what we see when we look around the world today. It doesn't matter how many people we have in this church today and whether we seem to be ascending or descending. God's victory is absolutely certain. His church will triumph. And that brings us a hope, a security and a peace which permeates every moment of our lives. Well, our passage concludes. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So his time hadn't quite come. So as he does um, multiple times throughout the Gospels, there are times when he tells his disciples, just keep a lid on it. My time hasn't come yet. It's coming, but it's not here yet. So just keep a lid on it. But there's more controversy in verse 19. Um, There's a lot of different views about what it all means, the keys of the kingdom. Um, And I don't want to get sidetracked today uh, on technicalities, but suffice it to say um, that church discipline is one of the essential marks that distinguishes a true church. The church is to preach the truth that genuine repentance opens the door to forgiveness of sins and life. There is one saviour in whom life is found, and his name is Jesus. Outside of Christ, there is no hope just a fearful expectation of the righteous and eternal wrath of God. The church is called to offer the free gift of grace and all of its benefits, but also to warn of the consequences of rejecting the Saviour. And so we find ourselves at the end of the passage. Admittedly, we didn't see a lot today of the character of Peter. But what we saw was vitally more important. We saw what God had done in the person of Peter. God had given him a gift of infinite worth. He'd revealed to him the truth, the reality, and the treasure of who Jesus is. The truth, the reality, and the treasure of who Jesus is. God had revealed to him that Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. He's everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. He's the Savior who was to come. He's everything that the ceremonies and the offerings and the sacrifices and the law and the temple, everything in the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah, the Savior from sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who alone has the words of eternal life. And he's the eternal son of God, both true God and true man, divine, eternally preexistent. 
He existed back in the beginning with God. And through him all things were created, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So Peter, just like you and just like me, was mere flesh and blood. And just like you and me, he needed God to break through his blindness and unstop his ears and raise him from the dead in order for him to hear the words of eternal life and be saved. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You know, there isn't a person on the planet who is so good that they don't need a saviour. You know, you have a, a lot of your friends maybe sort of think, oh, I've lived a pretty good life. And if you've been to the sad funeral of an unsaved friend or family member, they always talk about what a good person they were. But the truth is there's not a person on the planet who is good enough such that they don't need a saviour. We've all sinned. We all fall far short of the glory of God. We all prefer our own glory to the glory of God. But the really, really good news is that there's not a person on the planet who is so bad that they can't be forgiven of their sin. There's not a person on the planet who is so bad that they can't be forgiven from their sin. You know, some of the saddest conversations I've heard from people is when they truly believe that they've done too much wrong in their life. God wouldn't want them. They've done too much wrong. And no matter how much you plead with them, they can't believe. But the truth is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the only hope for every one of us. And he promises life and forgiveness and peace and joy and unassailable hope to absolutely everyone who will hear him calling and come to him to be saved. So in the end, it doesn't matter who people say that Jesus is. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what your pastor says about who Jesus is. Jesus looks you in the eye with eyes filled with compassion he looks you in the eye and he says to you who do you say that I am and may our answer resonate with Peter's in adoring worship Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God let's pray heavenly father perhaps more than anything this passage today shows me, shows us that we are absolutely hopeless apart from your intervention to come to us, to make us alive, to give us ears to hear the gospel call that we can be obedient, to give us eyes to see the treasure that is Christ, to give us a new heart filled with affections and joy for our Saviour, to have the ability to, to just see it all fit together and to know that we are saved. Father, would you come? Would you come in your power? Would you come in your majesty? Would you come in your glory? Come in your mercy today, I pray, Father, to every one of us. We may have been sitting in church all our lives. Father, I pray that we would know today that we are saved to the uttermost 
because we find Christ to be compelling. We find Christ to be a reality and we find Christ to be our highest treasure. Come to us in grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.